You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. College football is resisting, at least for the moment, football stadium naming rights. Instead, SEC stadiums seem to honor significant individuals in their stadium names. We'll get the story behind that from Rich Sermonello of Campus Insiders. You had to see it to believe it, and author and educator Jason Vuick did see it. The horrible losing streak of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 26 straight losses coming out of the gate. Jason tells us how attendance actually went up at Tampa Stadium. And Stadiums USA's Jeff Schmidt pinch hits for Mark Medoran and updates us on the political process for a new stadium in Las Vegas. But first, the stadiums beat. Jeff? Well, the NFL is going ahead with plans to have Sunday's Panthers-Vikings game played at Charlotte's Bank of America Stadium. The league has been monitoring developments after violent protests erupted following the police shooting of an African-American man this week. Protests on Wednesday moved just a few blocks from the stadium. A ruling from a district judge is impacting St. Louis Rams fans who bought personal seat licenses while the team was still in Missouri. Fans who bought their PSLs through the Rams will be allowed to buy season tickets for the games in Los Angeles. Those who bought through Fans Inc. will be given back refunds for their deposits. A future ruling will determine just how much of a refund fans will get. The announcement was made this week about the long-rumored entertainment complex envisioned for the area near the Texas Rangers ballpark. Construction on the 200,000-square-foot Texas Live development is set to begin in November. It will include a 300-room hotel and 35,000-square-foot convention space. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred was in Arlington this week talking about the development that is scheduled to open in 2018. We're going to end up with a facility here that will provide a comfortable, seasonal viewing opportunity for for the fans of the Rangers as they come to see Major League Baseball and a robust entertainment opportunity that surrounds that ballpark, and there's nothing better than that. Part of the project calls for repurposing the Rangers' current stadium, Globe Life Park, that could be replaced if voters approve a new Dome Stadium deal in November. A $125 million transformation is underway at Vivint Smart Home Arena in Salt Lake City. The home of the Utah Jazz is getting a complete upgrade on all six levels of the venue, including the addition of a 12,000-square-foot atrium, new suites, locker rooms, and fan lounges. And the new home of the Sacramento Kings is officially the greenest arena in the country. The Kings announced this week the new downtown facility has been certified LEED Platinum by the U.S. Green Building Council, the highest level of global recognition for environmentally conscious buildings. Bill, that's the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Some of the great football stadiums in America are in the SEC, and the names of these stadiums are unique and interesting. Our next guest is going to talk about some of those stadiums and how they got their names. Rich Sermonello, who is an associate editor of Campus Insiders. He is the director of college awards for the Maxwell Football Club. Rich, I thought this was a fun assignment. I'll bet you you had a lot of fun with this. 
I really did, Bill. I, I think that's the perfect way to characterize it. You know, sometimes covering the sport, I've covered college football for the better part of a decade. Sometimes there's the grunt work, there's the game recaps, there's the game previews and the like. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes that's busy work. This actually was fun for me because it was educational. In the research you did learning about each stadium, was there any situation you encountered which really surprised you in terms of how the stadium name came about? You know, I, I think what surprised me most of all, Bill, is is the amount of philanthropy that has taken place. Uh, you know, we live in an era now where stadium naming rights is a, is a big business aspect of sports, whether it's the NFL, whether it's professional or college. And obviously, college stadiums have now in, been impacted. But for me, which was you know, kind of revealing was just the the love of school, the love of campus, uh, campus that has inspired people across the country to give back to those programs. So from as far back as the early stages of the 20th century, we saw some, some amazing philanthropy that has really gotten those stadiums off the ground. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at some of the stories behind them. Alabama, of course, has been the site of much football success, so Bryant-Denny Stadium might be a natural place to start in the SEC. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, the Bryant side of Bryant-Denny is well-known for most fans. That is obviously Bear Bryant, fabled uh, Alabama coach and, and previously Kentucky head coach. That's sort of simple. But George Denny, uh, which was sort of interesting to me, never would have guessed. I mean, former president of the university, actually was a president for uh, for the almost a quarter of a century. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was kind of exciting for me too, Bill, not just to look at this from an athletic perspective, but in a lot of these instances, uh, they were individuals, male and female, who had uh, instrumental roles in the growth of the academics at these schools. We have seen a number of stadiums that have gone ahead and adopted the approach of naming the field with one name and naming the stadium with another. Reynolds Stadium, the home of the Razorbacks, certainly is one of those. The field is named for Frank Broyles. I think we all know about him, a very powerful man in Arkansas. And uh, what about Reynolds? Yeah, Reynolds was was Donald Reynolds who supplied the university just at the the end of the 20th century, 1999, I believe it was, uh, supplied the university with a $20 million gift. And, you know, listen, if you're able to expand the stadium with $20 million, I think that probably earns you the right to have the stadium named after you. And that's exactly what took uh place in Fayetteville. Auburn's Jordan-Hare Stadium, I think, is one of the most loved stadiums in America. It's big, and it is certainly beautiful. Tell us about the name there. Yeah, uh, Jordan-Hare Stadium. We're talking Ralph Jordan and and Cliff Hare. Hare was a, was a player on the very first Auburn football team, and then also went on to have a key role from an administrative perspective, not only at the university, but also in the old Southern Conference. And Shug Jordan is one of the most famous coaches in, in SEC history. Coached the Tigers uh, to, at that time, a school best 176 victories from 1951 to 1975. And again, you know, that's one of the things for me that I found so heartwarming is in this era, Bill, of constantly changing aspects of sports, there is a certain enduring lore that exists within those stadiums. And I, and I think it would be a travesty if, if something like Jordan-Hare Stadium went on to become something like Centennial Park or, 
you know, first energy stadium. I, I just, I love the, the iconic feel to those old stadium names. What about Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, the home of uh, Florida? Colloquially uh, known as the Swamp, obviously. <laughs> I, you know, a lot of folks don't even realize Ben Hill Griffin Stadium is the Swamp. But we're talking about, you know, not just a, an athletic donor, but one of the more influential Floridians of the 20th century. Uh, very wealthy philanthropist. Uh, we had done our research. He had donated in the neighborhood of about $20 million to the university throughout his lifetime. So a deep connection between Ben Hill Griffin, that family, that university. You know, we'll continue to call it the swamp, but uh, for folks in Gainesville, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium uh, holds a great deal of uh, of meaning. Sanford Stadium at the University of Georgia in Athens is a very special place. What is the story behind the naming here? Between the hedges, right? I mean, you talk about uh, manicured landscapes. <laughs> sure. We all wish we had uh, <laughs> we had hedges like that on our own property, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Stedman Vincent Sanford. Again, uh, fun for me, uh, Bill. I, I never could have told you prior to doing the research, uh, but we're talking about a very important educational educational leader in the South going way back to the first half of the 20th century, uh, president of Georgia from 1932 to 35, and then chancellor of the university system and until he passed away in 1945. So again, enduring names associated with those uh, stadiums. And I, I don't think schools in the SEC would have it any other way. I, I think that will always be Sanford Stadium. Well, Rich, it's a fascinating topic. Congratulations on this. I'm glad you had a great time putting it together, and we had a great time learning about it. Thank you so much, Bill. Greatly appreciate it. I had a wonderful time today. And you too, Rich Sermonello, our guest. Uh, we have a big show ahead, so stay tuned. We'll return after you listen to this on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Losing can be a way of life for teams through the years. The Chicago Cubs are certainly known for that. The 1962 New York Mets, certainly. But when it comes to uh, futility in the National Football League, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are first chair. They lost their first 26 games of their existence. They were the brunt of many, many jokes, including some by Johnny Carson. They supplied fresh material for Johnny Carson on a regular basis. And John McKay became kind of a legend down there with his classic one-liners. We're going to talk about this and also about the stadium that the Tampa Bay Bucks 
played in, and our guest is Jason Vuick, and he is the author of a book, The Yucks, Two Years in Tampa and the Losingest Team in NFL History. Jason, you picked a very interesting topic. Why the Bucks? <laughs> Why the Bucks? Well, I grew up uh, 100 miles south of Tampa in a little town in Florida called Punta Gorda. And in the early 80s, uh, Doug Williams, the quarterback, and Leroy Selman and a number of players came to my town to play a charity basketball game. You know, they played the Shriners and the Rotarians and the high school basketball players. And then they signed autographs. And I really fell in love with Doug Williams. He was just the greatest. I was eight or nine years old, and I began collecting his football cards and watching the Bucks and, and following the team, even mm. when they started to lose, when they started to lose epically, you know, 14 losing seasons in a row through junior high and high school and into college. I was a Bucks fan, and I've remained a Bucks fan ever since. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, you join a very, very loyal group of fans through the years <laughs> who suffered and suffered mightily. And yet, even though they were losing, fan attendance was going up. And Tampa established itself as a very solid football community. What are the roots behind that? Well, you know, I think that's how they even landed a team. It wasn't just they got the team and the team became popular. Um, in the 1960s, Tampa was, you know, a smallish, um, mid-sized American city, an industrial city. Um, but the surrounding communities of Sarasota, Bradenton, St. Petersburg, Clearwater, uh, Ocala, you could put them all together and you had about a million people. So Tampa was on the map, just like Seattle was on the map in the 70s before they got teams. Mm -hmm. And they would have these um, preseason exhibition games come to Tampa to play at the University of Tampa's stadium, Tampa Stadium. It was a two grandstand structure. It sat about 45,000, um, not quite a pro field yet, but still a, a brand new place. And the first couple of games in the late 60s, uh, Tampa drew, you know, 42, 43,000 people to see a meaningless preseason game often against teams that weren't very good, the Falcons and the Redskins, for example. Mm -hmm. And because of this attendance over 10, 11, 12 games, the NFL realized Tampa is our next city. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, they had, you know, upwards of 52,000 fans once they put, you know, seats in the end zones. Um, and that's really why Tampa landed the team. Um, more than anything else, it was that early support for the for the future Buccaneers. I think all of us remember key moments where we were, what we were doing when a key event happened. I would have to think that the Buccaneers' first win may have actually been a moment like that for you. Uh, the Buccaneers had lost 26 straight games. Um, 1976 season, they went 0-14. and 14. Uh, lost every game. Some they lost brutally. I mean, you know, 42 to nothing at Pittsburgh in, in a game that was the largest point spread in the history of the NFL at the time. You know, losing by 40 or almost 50 at the Raiders. Uh, then the next year, they were even worse, believe it or not. They were 2-12. and 12. Um, But they went 12 games in the season, played at New Orleans, and the story that everyone talks about is Archie Manning, uh, the quarterback, the great quarterback of the Saints, supposedly said, and he denies it, but supposedly said it would be shameful or a disgrace to lose to the Buccaneers. Well, 
you all know, you know, in sports that you don't want to give anyone a slight, real or imagined. And the Buccaneer defense, which had always been good, um, really started to emerge with Leroy Selman and David Lewis and Richard Wood, these really hard-hitting linebackers. And the defense scored three defense touchdowns in one game. They just brutalized Manning and essentially won the game themselves. That was how the Bucks won their first game. And when they returned to Tampa, there were 8,000 people at the airport and then back at their headquarters partying. They were on the rooftops. They were on their cars. You know, what the trainer told me the next morning it looked like, you know, someone had, had dropped a bomb on one buck place. People had taken pieces of grass as souvenirs, potted plants, um, you know, marching band, cars, police. It was just a raucous party back in Tampa to end the longest losing streak in the history of the NFL. Jason, it's also a little bit about the nature of the marketplace. Tampa-St. Petersburg continues to grow at an amazing rate. It used to be, a little while back, Miami was clearly the largest television market in the state. But just a a week or so ago, A.C. Nielsen, the rating company, announced the national ratings of various markets, and Tampa St. Pete is now the largest television market in the state. How does that speak to the phenomenon and uh, sports support in the area? Growing up down there, I remember, you know, living in a small town and every five years or so, you just have to stop and look around and go, whoa, I mean, things were growing. And and I was in a sleepy part of Florida, Southwest Florida. It was historically, you know, retirees, the older part of Florida. Um, And it was booming throughout my life. And, And so that was part of the book. I wanted to write about how Tampa and St. Petersburg, this entire region, uh, was growing and growing at this incredible clip um, that has never really stopped. Um, you know, a lot of the money, a lot of the retirees um, that, that had gone to East Florida, um, had gone to Miami and the coast, Lauderdale, um, Jacksonville, all those places in between, um, now come over to Central Florida and have come over to areas in Tampa, which is Hillsborough County, Pinellas, but also moving into Polk, which is, you know, that hinterland between Hillsborough and Orlando, between Tampa and Orlando, and north into Pasco, places that used to be essentially forests, they've built whole communities. You know, just these sleepy towns have boomed. And it's not surprising to me um, that this has happened. Um, I'm really not surprised. I think for all the historic growth on the East Coast, um, there was always this this untapped market of land and television and 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 consumers and sports fans. I mean, look at the Lightning. Look at the popularity of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, and then look at the Bucks. The Bucks dominate the market there. People, I mean, Tampa Bay, Tampa itself, St. Petersburg. These are Buccaneer towns. I mean, this is a pro city, and no sport brings people together and, and focuses everyone's attention like NFL football and the Buccaneers. Well, Jason, it's an interesting book, an interesting read. We hope everybody checks it out. How do they get the book, The Yucks? Two years in Tampa with the losingest team in NFL history. Um, Well, it's at Barnes & Noble. It should be at every Barnes & Noble in the country, and it's also at Amazon.com. You can order it pretty quickly. All right, very good. Congratulations on the book, and it brings back a lot of memories, I'm sure, for any fans who experienced it, as you did. We wish you well. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Jason Vuick. 
who wrote this fascinating book and shared some of the great memories of NFL football in Tampa, the early years. Stay tuned now. When we return, we're going to talk shop. That is coming up next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Time to talk shop once again, and in steps our number one pinch hitter around here, executive producer for this program, Jeff Schmidt. We remind you, Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. Check it out at stadiumsusa.com. Also, you can listen to the podcasts of Stadiums USA Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network and subscribe to us on iTunes and, of course, listen each week on SB Nation Radio. All right, Jeff, let's go ahead and get at it. We'll put the spotlight initially on a town that gets plenty of it, Las Vegas. And uh, they're building a new dome stadium, or hope to, many hoping the Raiders are part of that equation. The plan still needs approval from state lawmakers. The Las Vegas Review Journal surveyed legislatures to get a feel on which way they are leaning on this project and what did they find out? Well, some interesting stuff here, Bill. The uh, Review Journal reached out to 58 legislators. More than half said that they're still gathering information on the stadium project and have not decided just how they will vote. That's really no surprise. Governor Brian Sandoval said he would call lawmakers into a special session. This is coming up soon, probably the first week in October they're going to tackle this. Mm. Some of those lawmakers that did talk, um, Assembly Speaker John Hambrick, who is on record saying he supports the new stadium and how bringing the Raiders to Vegas would be a boon for the economy. It sounds like, according to that article, most that responded support the measure. Those who didn't respond aren't ready to vote yes, at least not at this point. I think it's still up in the air how this will play out. $750 million, I believe, is the public dollars portion. But I guess in Vegas, anything's possible. Yeah, I don't think Oakland is going to go down without a fight in terms of trying to retain the Raiders. And with that in mind, a very interesting person visited the Bay Area to watch the most recent Raiders game. What's the story? on that. Well, that gentleman you reference is NFL executive Eric Grubman. He was in Oakland uh, for the past week, and he started out his tour there with the uh, Raiders-Falcons game uh, last weekend. We remember Eric Grubman's name. He was in the in the middle of stadium talks in Los Angeles and San Diego. Mm-hmm. Now, he leaked word to various media outlets that he was coming to Oakland. So, you know, there was some method to the madness here. Along with Mayor Libby Schaff, he set up media Meetings with the East Bay business community. Ronnie Lott, the NFL Hall of Famer, who is part of a group interested in building an Oakland stadium, 
was also part of those meetings. Got to cut through a lot of red tape here to see exactly what is going on and get to the brass tacks. The important thing is, and I think, Bill, you have referenced this as well, Oakland and the county of Alameda County has the land where the current Coliseum sits. Some have estimated that that land can be leveraged into a deal, possibly with Ronnie Lott's group, to build a new stadium. And, you know, speaking of that land, which they have, it's very well connected to, Jeff. Look at the traffic jams we've seen at Levi's Stadium. You have great public transportation right to the doorstep in Oakland. Jeff, the much-talked-about entertainment district next to the Texas Rangers ballpark appears to be going forward. And, of course, you have the Cowboy Stadium right nearby as well. This is going to be quite a complex when it is complete. Several hundred thousand square feet, as I understand it. What are the details? Well, the nuts and bolts, uh, some of the items we learned about this week, a 300-room hotel, 35,000-square-foot convention space. Uh, groundbreaking will take place in November. It will be called Texas Live. Uh, cost of the project actually has increased lately from 200 to 250 million, which will be picked up by the Rangers and uh, the developer on the project. This is just the first phase of what could be a three billion dollar development. They never do anything small in Texas. <laughs> uh, some of that development will include something called Arlington Backyard. Uh, this is an outdoor event pavilion. Part of the project also includes the repurposing of Globe Life Park. That's, of course, the Rangers' current home that would need to be repurposed in the event that they pass a November referendum that would call for a new dome ballpark. So still a lot to find out on what happens there in Texas. Sticking with the Rangers and their desire for a new ballpark, interesting to note MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred's comment this week on how the team is at a competitive disadvantage as he sees it relative to the current ballpark. The story on that. Well, this is amazing, Bill. I, I found this very interesting. Amazing what some of the commissioners of the pro sports leagues will do and say, all in the name of lining their pockets. Speaking in Arlington this week, Manfred said the Texas climate puts the Rangers at a competitive disadvantage on two fronts. It wears the players down and the heat makes it tough to recruit players to Arlington. Well, you'd think someone with Manfred's uh, credentials could find a more creative way to talk about the need for a new ballpark. Competitive? The Rangers have won 90 or more games five of the last seven years. Of course, when we break this all down, I think Manfred is probably referring to financial competitiveness as obviously a new ballpark is all about maximizing the money. I just I found that very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I think it would be interesting for the folks in Atlanta who are building an outdoor <laughs> park. Jeff, let's take some time to look back at significant stadium and ballpark events. What do you have this week in stadium history? Always love this segment, Bill. Uh, this week, 1934, only 2,500 attend the game at Yankee Stadium to see Babe Ruth's final appearance in pinstripes. Wow. This week in 1973, I don't know how many people remember this, the National League refuses to allow the Padres to move to Washington, D.C. A group of Washington businessmen had bought the team from Padres owner C. Arnold Smith. 
baseball cards for the 1974 season anticipated the move and even printed Washington National League on the Padres player cards. But there were some owners that stepped up. Vocal owners like the Dodgers, Walter O'Malley, and the Cubs, Philip Wrigley, they opposed the move. Of course, the move never took place. The Padres would forever call San Diego home. A couple other items. 1984, the Cubs passed the 2 million mark in attendance for the first time in club history. And this week in 2008, the Yankees play their final game in old Yankee Stadium. The next season, they would move into new Yankee Stadium. And Bill, before I let you go, from our Stadiums USA quiz this week, this might be right up your alley. These are (laughs) some NBA arenas I know that you know well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And this is located on our Stadiums USA quiz site. This former NBA arena closed prematurely due to design flaws that included the rusting of steel beams that caused the entire structure to deteriorate. Can you name the arena? Here's your four options. Okay. A, McNichols Arena in Denver. Mm-hmm. B, the Omni in Atlanta. C, Hemisphere Arena in San Antonio. Or D, the Richfield Coliseum located just outside Cleveland. All right. Well, let's take the ones out we know it definitely isn't. The Richfield Coliseum was as solid as a rock. So that one is out. The Hemisphere Arena was solid to the best of my knowledge. That's out. McNichol Sports Arena in Denver leaked like a sieve. (laughs) But I don't remember it being crumbling. So that's out. That leaves the Omni in Atlanta. And I'm pretty sure that... That's the one. And, brother, that would be right, too, because nobody would have been a bigger fan out of moving out of there. Every time I worked in there, Jeff, I got a headache. You are dead on, Bill. It was the Omni. They they built it with this protective seal that they hoped would rust, mm-hmm. which would kind of uh, seal the rust. But they didn't take into account the subtropical climate, which put so much stress on the steel that it never stopped rusting. <laughs> it did not last as long as many of the other NBA arenas that were built at the same time. Well, I can tell you that there were a lot more problems with the Omni than that. I'll tell you. <laughs> it didn't stop it. We're going to go chapter and verse on that. But that's for another program. Graham, Jeff. So thank you very much. As always, a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Good talking to you, Bill. That's our program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadiums USA on Blog Talk Radio. 